Just before you listen to this episode of Hollywood Sources, let me tell you that you can come and join us live for a special recording on the 21st of March as we mark 25 years of devolution. Already confirmed, Alex Salmond, Jack McConnell, Henry McLeish, all former First Ministers of Scotland, of course. You can hear them in conversation, ask them your questions, make your points as well. Come along and see us. Get your tickets at hollywoodsources.com forward slash live. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. I am the candidate for getting independence done. And I'm the only candidate who has already reached out and is uniting the wider yes movement. If you want independence, I am your only hope. Tonight, I want to offer a fresh vision to Scotland because continuity won't cut it. If elected First Minister, I want to reach across the divide and persuade no voters to vote yes in a future referendum. I want to put economic growth front and centre. I want to build on that winning formula that has seen us win election after election. That radical, that progressive agenda, which has seen success for the SNP grow to unprecedented heights. Hello and welcome to Hollywood Sources. Thank you very much for joining us once again. And if you've just found us, welcome. It's great to have you there. Of course, you can follow and subscribe to the podcast. We'd love you to hang around. We've still got a couple of weeks of this SNP leadership contest to go. And then, of course, we've got the prospect of a new first minister to navigate as well. We'd love for you to stick around. Uh, I'm Callum MacDonald. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And joining us as ever, we've got Jeff Aberdeen, former chief of staff to the first minister, Alex Salmond. Hello, Jeff. Hello. Hello. And we've got Andy McKeever, former Director of Communications for the Scottish Conservatives. Hello, Andy. Hello. Lovely. Uh, also, you can get in touch. Email us anytime. <laughs> hello at hollywoodsources.com is the email address to drop by and say hello. Uh, let me just read this from Alan Jones, who, by the way, sends a compliment. If you want your message read out, be nice to us. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a surefire way of getting included. Alan says, great second episode. As, as an SNP member, it's given me lots and lots of food for thought. And one question, actually, that Alan asks, given SNP membership average age is mid-50s, I think, how big will the issues surrounding Kate Forbes's faith actually be when it comes to the vote by SNP members? I think that's a really interesting question because it launches us into a discussion, I suppose, really, of what we have learned so far and how that is shaping this leadership contest. And I suppose the impact that, as Alan mentioned, those sorts of issues may have, but also the things that we've learned along the way. Um, Jeff, if I ask you that broad question, first of all, what have we learned so far? Uh, what stands out for you? Yeah, I think the, the, the crystallisation of the campaigns, particularly 
um, of Hamza Youssef and Kate Forbes um, has probably stood out the most. I think we see uh, Kate Forbes recognising that in the absence of parliamentary support, which uh, uh, not entirely, uh, but the vast majority of it has certainly gone to uh, Hamza Youssef, she's certainly playing to the general public as her strategy and hoping that that influences the undecided uh, members. And so she's been deliberately throughout the debates and, and throughout the hustings making that appeal to, to the broad electorate. And the polling tends to back that up. She's doing that on an evidence base of saying, look, she is uh, regarded by the public as the, the favoured candidate to uh, be First Minister and also on almost every issue as well, be it health, education, cost of living crisis, and of course, uh, her, her hobby horse, the economy. <laughs> On the other side, we've seen uh, Hamza Youssef uh, making more direct appeals to the SNP members, and they are ultimately the ones that will vote in this and trying to say, uh, point to the similar polls, saying, OK, I, I'm, I, I, I understand that I'm not the most popular First Minister at this stage, but I've built my, my uh, um, credence up with the uh, SNP members, um, and I'm making appeal to them. Mm. Now, Ash, uh, and we shouldn't forget Ash, has, has been consistent as well, um, and her campaign's really crystallised on that more kind of radical approach um, on independence, uh, particularly. So I think the most thing uh, that, that stands out to me is, or the biggest thing that stands out to me is that crystallisation of the campaigns, and it hasn't really deviated that much, in all honesty. Mm. Andy, what do you make of what that broad question, as I say, what we've learned so far? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think Jeff says it hasn't really deviated. I think that's right. I actually think it's entrenched more than anything else. I mean, the Sky News debate this week was really interesting because it was more explicit than I've ever seen it before. There was actually one point uh, at which Kate Forbes said to Hamza Youssef, you know, I'm more popular in the country. And Hamza Youssef effectively said, well, that doesn't really matter because I'm more popular in the party. <laughs> and then um, it's this really interesting, um, now clearly very deliberate strategy from both of them, where Hamza Youssef is saying, this is an election of SNP members, and the job is to win that election and become the leader of the SNP. And Kate Forbes is saying, I'm going to appeal to the broader country, try and increase the gap between me and Hamza in the polls of the broader country, so that I can turn around to the SNP membership and say, you might not like me as much as you like him, but I'm the only one who can deliver the thing that you're an SNP member for, which is independence. Because if we don't get more than just SNP supporters voting yes, then we can't get independence. So they're completely different strategies. Um, and I think it's fascinating. I mean, you know, we've said before, people always say, what's the point in politics? They're all the same. You never get anything that's different. Well, these are two candidates, not in opposing parties, but inside the same party that are not only offering the SNP a completely different direction from each other, but are offering the country a completely different direction from each other as well. And I think that makes it clearly very important to the whole country, but also very interesting from the point of view of us Anaraki political commentators. I think that one thing in the email from, it was Alan, wasn't it, that sent the email, I think one really interesting thing in the email is the one really important thing that we don't really know and that the information is really sketchy on, which is the SNP membership. So you can speak to people and you hear, you know, it's 
it's an average age of 55 or or whatever uh, age it mentioned in that email and i've you know i've heard that as well and you think to yourself well, well that's you know potentially quite good for Kate Forbes, and then you hear that post-2014, the bulk of the massive influx of 100,000 members were actually, you know, young left-wing urban people, and you think to yourself, well, that must be really good for Hamza, and then you hear that it's down to 75,000 and so on, and one of, the, of all the information that we have during this campaign, which is quite a lot, one of the sketchiest bits of information is what is the demographics of the SNP membership? And you can speak to two or three SNP members and get seven or eight different answers to that question. Nobody really seems to know. And it's obviously also very difficult to poll. So that makes this whole thing incredibly unpredictable. Um, and, you know, you often hear political commentators like us uh, advocating certainty and saying, well, this is definitely going to happen and that's definitely going to happen. And I think if you listen to people like us seven or eight years ago, you wouldn't have had Corbyn, you wouldn't have had Ed Miliband, you probably wouldn't have had Boris Johnson either, none of whom were supposedly electable from within their own memberships, but all of whom won. So, you know, I think from that point of view as well, it's really quite fascinating to work out where we're going. Can I ask you a question, Andy, right? Um, based on what I, you've might, seen I might not so be able to give you the answer, Jeff, but you can certainly uh, ask the question. Well, <laughs> based on what you've seen so far and your uh, you know, previous employment as an advisor to, to, the, to the opposition, to the SNP, who do you think Anna Sarwar and Douglas Ross most fear? I mean, um, I have to say, when I saw Kate Forbes in the STV debate show that grit, um, shall we say, in the punchy questioning of Hamza, one of the thoughts I did have was... Phew, I don't think Anna Sarwar or Douglas Ross are looking at that going, I fancy that much. Um, but quite interesting. So, but, but obviously there's much wider politics at play than that. Maybe they're hoping that with a Kate Forbes victory, the party um, it dissolves or diverges more within itself. Mm. Who would you prefer if you're one of those? Well, so I think the answer is a bit different uh, between Labour and the Tories. I think Anna Sarwar wins out of this either way. Um, because uh, either candidate for him is better than Nicola Sturgeon. Um, if it's Hamza Youssef, he'll be fighting on similar ideological territory, and an Asar will probably fancy himself to just outfight Hamza Youssef on that, um, and just you know perform better for what is largely the same group of voters, especially if they've got a devolution offer to give as well. Similarly, if he's fighting Kate Forbes, he won't be that fussed about that either, because I think he'll feel like he can play the sort of centre-left card uh, against the sort of more centrist Forbes card. So I think from Labour's point of view, they don't have a massive amount to worry about, and I think they are probable gainers from this. More complex with the Tories. So, again, you'll speak to two Tories and get lots of different answers on this. Some of them, and, and this, is the, this is the Conservative and Unionist Party, and I think ultimately what's good for the Conservatives is bad for the Unionists, and what's bad for, good for the Unionists is bad for the Conservatives. I think the Conservative Party would rather have Kate Forbes win this, because they will feel that that will create a potential split in the SNP, and so tactically and electorally, they will feel better about that because they think it will give the SNP trouble. But I think that the unionist side of the argument would rather have Hamza Youssef win it. Because the unionist side of the argument understands that in order for independence to happen, somebody has to turn soft unionists into nationalists. And they don't think Hamza Youssef can do that. But they do think Kate Forbes can do that. So there's, this, there's these competing thoughts, I think, within the Conservative Party, where... If you're a unionist, you think to yourself, right, okay, we really have Kate Forbes to fear here. 
but actually, from a tactical electoral point of view, Hamza Youssef is the one that probably keeps the big SNP bandwagon running more easily than Kate Forbes. So I think that's the that's probably the the dichotomy in the Tory party. Mm. What a brilliant breakdown. I wonder then, with that in mind, Jeff, are you getting a sense of the SNP's own, I suppose, self-awareness about who they are going to elect here? And I, I, I think sometimes in these discussions, not necessarily from you two, but sometimes we, we talk about an SNP leadership contest and we only think of the MSPs. And actually, there is this unknown membership out there. And I'm just wondering how much all of these sorts of things are feeding into how they're making their decisions. Voting is open. They're voting even as we speak. And so I just wonder what that level of self-awareness is for, for the direction of travel. Yeah, the truth is, I don't know if any uh, MSP or MP could put their hand on their heart and tell you what's actually going on here. I can give you a bit of interesting <laughs> insights, though. Um, uh, I have spoken to uh, a couple of parliamentarians, both an M MP and MSP, in, in, in what shall we say, more rural Scotland. And what's interesting is, uh, despite the way they might have uh, publicly um, backed the candidate, they, they've said there's quite a lot of s hidden support um, for Kate Forbes. Uh, now, my guess is, as you gravitate towards the central belt, that might be reversed. And that's simply a guess. But I did find that interesting. There'd been at you know branch meetings and two uh, constituencies, and both had said similar things. Quite a lot of support there for Kate Forbes. And I think that goes back to Alan's question, does it not? You do wonder if there is a an older demog demographic that's looking at it going, you know what? She's entitled to her views. I couldn't mm. really care less. I want to know how she's going to govern the country, uh, first and foremost. And would that have them gravitate towards Kate, whereas uh, the kind of more younger intake, shall we say, of, of members that Andy alluded to, would they be more persuaded to go with with, with with Hamza? So the answer strictly to your question is, I don't have a clue what's going on, but I don't, <laughs> yeah. know, don't know if anyone else does either. Well, and, quite yeah, and that in itself is fascinating. As you say, the kind of mystery around the SNP membership is something that keeps coming up throughout this contest too. And just on the kind of atmosphere, Andy, I was struck by this piece in the Times. Kate Forbes is being driven out of the SNP by the party leadership in a mirror image of the, quote, disgraceful treatment of the nationalist Margot MacDonald. One of Nicola Sturgeon's former cabinet uh, ministers has claimed this. This is Alex Neil, the former social justice secretary, who is backing uh, the current finance secretary to be the next uh, first minister, really going for the kind of current hierarchy of the SNP, which perhaps ties in with what you said a couple of weeks ago about um, uh, your experience of, of trying to abolish the Conservative Party in Scotland with Murdo Fraser. But I'm just wondering if, if what sense of the atmosphere around the party you're kind of picking up. Um, I mean, I, I obviously spend a lot of time at Parliament uh, in my in my day job, and um, there, there there's no question about the fact that I mean, you could put the Alec Neil comments to one side. Um, I'm not saying positively or, or negatively, but um, even if you uh, take it down a notch from the kind of, you know, active conspiracy against Kate Forbes stuff that floats around a little bit, there isn't any question at all, objectively, that the party and its hierarchy, if you want to put it that way, by which I mean the elected members and so on, have definitely closed ranks here. There's no question about that. I talked a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the parallels with the Murdo Fraser thing. Um, I talked about the survival instinct that political parties have. Um, and that survival instinct, I think, is what has led to this. You know, you have a lot more parliamentarians um, backing Hamza Youssef. Uh, you have, you know, the, virtually the entirety of the cabinet backing Hamza Youssef. Um, and, you know, I, 
I think you'd have to say that if the quote-unquote establishment SNP were to pick a candidate, they'd clearly pick Hamza Youssef. I mean, I don't think anybody really denies that now. Um, and the atmosphere uh, towards Kate is, is not great, in my experience. I don't think it is all that good. But here's the difference, because that survival instinct plays both ways. If Kate Forbes does win this election, if she wins this leadership election, the first thing that the calm old heads in the SNP will do is they will say, right guys, calm down. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater here. We've still got 64 seats. We're still the government. We're still trying to achieve independence here. And you cannot throw the toys out of the pram. We are going to have to make this work. I suspect that somebody, for instance, like John Swinney, would be the person who would very clearly play that role of saying to everybody, calm down, we will get through this, we've got to come back together. Now, I'm not saying that will be a doddle to do that, but I think the same survival instinct that has led to this closing ranks uh, and this massive amount of, of elected support for Hamza Youssef, that exact same survival instinct, I think, will, will flip uh, and we'll start to see if Kate Forbes wins, we'll say, right, okay, we're going to have to work out some sort of way to make this work. Yeah, not least because um, should Kate Forbes uh, win, uh, then you're going to have a, a situation where that vast majority of elected parliamentarians have backed the opposing uh, candidate. And actually, there's a bit of a, uh, a question for all of those parliamentarians as well. How did they not uh, pick up the mood within their own membership? Um, so I actually think Andy's hit the nail on the head there. It's going to be really important that they reflect the views of their own membership, uh, given it's a democratic contest. You mentioned John Swinney there, uh, Andy. I think that, that might have well had a huge impact and potential influence on some of the members. He is such a respected figure across the party. Uh, equally, Stephen Flynn, uh, a well-known and well-kent kind of figure, is cutting his teeth pretty well as leader of the party at Westminster. Uh, his declaration may have had an impact as too. So the, so the opposite is also true, that they're the ones that you've got to look to, to turn around and say, look, guys, we've had a democratic contest, and now's the time to bring the party back together. So you are looking at those senior heads, the most influential parliamentarians in the party, to say, come on, get on, we respect the vote, and we move on as one. You know, It's going to be utterly fascinating to see how this plays out. So on the subject of John Swinney, I thought the endorsement at the weekend was really interesting, right? Because my first instinct when he endorsed Hamza Youssef, and it's still my instinct now, you might change it in a second, Jeff, when you tell me why I'm wrong, but my instinct then and now is that I don't think it's going to make that much difference. Because if you have an election that is so clearly framed around continuity versus change, and the, the biggest establishment figure outside of the First Minister backs the candidate of the establishment, the continuity candidate, doesn't that just entrench what everybody already thinks anyway? Does that actually swing many people towards Hamza Youssef who were undecided? Or does it make people say, who were maybe thinking about voting Kate Forbes, does it make them say, yeah, this really is, this is a bit of a stitch-up, isn't it? You know, even if it's not, does it play into that sort of perception? So as I say, my gut feeling was, is this actually as big a deal as you would instinctively think it is? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question, good point. Uh, let me answer uh, by... Um, firstly, acknowledging that I agree with you to the sense that um, not many interventions like that will move the dial significantly. But 
One thing that I think we do know, at least on the current polls anyway that they're out there, the sparse SNP voters polls that are out there, this is a very close contest. So if you're an undecided voter and you're just not sure who you're opting for and somebody of John Swinney's ilks comes to the fore and says, no, no, I'm going with Hamza, I think that does move accepting a small percentage, but it certainly will move some. I, I just, I've worked alongside John for so many years. He does carry the respect across uh, the party, regardless of particular views or particular stances you may have in the party. He's one of those few people you could genuinely call a unifier. I don't think it moves the dial a lot, so I do agree with you to an extent, but I certainly think that'll have taken a few undecided voters by surprise and thought, actually, you know, I'll go, I might just go with John in this, you know. Um, but your, your, your overarching point is, is still pertinent. And I think we haven't talked about yet in this discussion, and we've talked about it before, is the Ash Reagan transfers. You know, um, uh, based on what I saw in the debate the other night, and, and you know, Hamza and Ash Reagan kind of going at it pretty, pretty strong hammer and tongs, I, I was uh, watching it going, well, I don't think many Ash Reagan supporters are going to be putting Hamza as their second preference based on what I've just seen. So if it is tight, and Ash Reagan transfers do count. I wonder if uh, he might and his campaign might live to regret that. Mm. Just as a, as a hypothetical, it's interesting to think about what this contest would look like if Ash Reagan wasn't in it. If it was, if it was just yeah. Yusuf versus Forbes, I wonder. It would, it would feel actually quite remarkably different. I think. I realise it's a hypothetical, but it's quite an interesting one to consider. My instinct is that if it was a straight head to head, obviously that would be better for Hamza Yusuf because mm. we presume that many of the. Ash Reagan's second preferences will end up going to Kate Forbes. But the interesting thing, of course, about that is that, um, and we saw that, particularly in the Sky News debate, it was a little bit two against one-ish at times, to be honest, and you did feel like um, the uh, Reagan Forbes were going a little easier on each other than they were on Hamza Youssef. So you can see that happening. But interestingly, economically, of course, mm. Ash Reagan and Kate Forbes are quite far apart. Yeah. Mm. Ash Reagan you know, was involved with the Commonweal think tank, a pretty far-left economic outfit. Here, where and and you know, Kate Forbes is very much an economic centrist, talking about economic growth. So actually, um, I think at the moment, what is uniting those two is clearly far more powerful than what's dividing them. But in terms of the basic foundations of how you run politics and how you run an economy and how you run a country, they're actually not all that close together. I don't think so. Mm. It's having an it's having an interesting in impact in the uh, campaign, but um, I think the. The, they are appearing closer together at the moment, which probably suits them both perfectly well. They're appearing closer together on most issues than they actually probably are. Yeah. Can you see a cabinet position for Ash Regan at the end of this, Jeff? Would she serve under either of the other two? Should one of them win, of course? That's a really good question. I, I think, you know, again, it, it, it depends on uh, who wins, mm. but... I would be pretty tempted, actually, to offer a cabinet position to Ash Reagan, and I, and I would actually be pretty tempted to offer a cabinet position to the other, you know, yeah. loser as well. Um, if we accept the premise, as we've been discussing, that this is a party that's facing a little bit of an identity crisis, um, that there are divisions afoot, one way you would seek to try and nullify that would be to uh, get your two biggest um, uh, kind of opponents in the race, the only two opponents in the race, into cabinet positions. Will that happen, though? I don't know. I think it's a totally different question because um, I have seen quite a lot of animosity between the candidates. There's been a lot of, and let's not overstate that, actually, because there has been a lot of agreement as well. 
Um, but but I think if you're thinking right, if, for example, if you're Hamza and you know that you've got um, as your principal opponent in Kate Forbes somebody that is more favoured by the public, would it not make sense to try and bring her into the cabinet and try and help shore that up? Mm. Equally, if you're Kate Forbes and you know that you've got a principal opponent who seems to be uh, uh, more popular on first preferences potentially than the uh, than you uh, in the membership, then wouldn't it make sense to bring them in? Now, well, whether they accept or not that position is another question as well. But I, I would like to think that, and I, again, I go back to my own experience of 2007, um, you know, there were, you could argue that there was no love lost between uh, Alex Salmond and, and, and people like Alec Neil, who you mentioned earlier, Mike Russell, uh, Rosanna Cunningham. They all found their way into the government in some way, shape or form. Uh, and two of those individuals were promoted to cabinet secretaries before long. So that's something I think has to be looked at carefully. Yeah. Do you know I, what I think, though? There's a giant elephant in the room here. Is they're not called gender recognition reform? <laughs> I mean, if, if, if Hamza Youssef wins... Uh, and Good becomes point. first minister, you have a situation then where he maintains the cooperation agreement with the Greens, and I mean he has been fulsome in his praise mm. for the Greens. I mean, there's no, you know, cooperation agreement doesn't really describe it anymore. as is effectively a full-blown coalition at this point, um, and we know that the Greens. I think it's fair to say the Greens' top priority has been gender recognition reform. If that is the case and you have collective responsibility in the cabinet, you have in Ash Reagan somebody who has already resigned over that issue once, and then you have in Kate Forbes somebody who effectively has said that she would. So if he challenges a Section 35 and gender recognition reform somehow moves on uh, in that sort of way, how does that work? Okay, a really interesting point and a very good point, but what caused the chasm before was the fact that there was a vote um, now, we need to understand what's going to happen with the Section 35 order. We, we're not going to second-guess the courts here. But, you know, there's, there's quite a wealthy body of opinion suggesting that it might not be successful, in which case it's going to have to be amended anyway, you would have thought, at some point. It would make no sense to come back and have another vote. I'm not even sure if that's possible. So perhaps that would be, uh, be able to be uh, accommodated somewhat. But it is a good point, uh, and perhaps that... Uh, Ash Reagan and Kate Forbes who feel that they wouldn't necessarily be able to, to go along with that in the cabinet. But I do think we've got to remember the principal reason for the division there was because there was a, you know, that voting um, procedure through the parliament, which um, I just don't see how that's going to be revisited in the current terms that, that it is, um, unless the Supreme Court uh, backed the Scottish government. Mm. And that feeds in, doesn't it, to, I suppose, the priority placed on independent, which is perhaps something that has got a bit clearer too since the TV debates got underway. A really notable poll ahead of the Sky debate, this done by YouGov, found 54% of Scottish people want to remain part of the UK. Now, it's just one poll, and it's always better to look at trends, of course. But it's interesting in the context of whether independent is the top priority for the candidate and indeed for the country. And uh, Hamza Youssef was actually the only one that said, yes, independence is my top priority um, during that debate. And I just wonder how you square that circle, because in all that we're talking about, in the fractures and the difficulties and who serves in whose ca uh, cabinet and how does the agreement with the Greens work, um, independence is always the sort of umbrella under which everyone sits. But if it's not the top priority for all three, that's a really interesting distinction between them. If it's not necessarily the top priority for the public either, that's a really interesting consideration too. So Andy, where where are we with, with independence as this campaign continues? 
Well, so part of that gets us right back to what we said at the start of the podcast today, which is that you have Hamza Youssef, who's very squarely and firmly appealing to the membership, and you have Kate Forbes and, to a degree, Ash Reagan, who are very firmly appealing to uh, an audience beyond the membership. And so, yeah, Hamza Youssef has said this week, independence is my top priority because he thinks that's what the members want to hear. And he may be right. That may be what the members want to hear. I think in reality, if you take... Well, firstly, we know that... Um, it is not the top priority for people in Scotland. We know that. And I think if you look at this objectively, uh, and I mean, I am somebody who's spoken out many times before that I think there is a mandate for a second independence referendum. I think it was voted for very clearly in 2021. I think there should have been one. I think the UK government should have granted one because I think it's the democratic will of the people of Scotland. So, uh, you know, I think it should have happened. That being said, independence is miles away mm. at this point. It is as far away as it has been since the referendum in 2014. There is no obvious quick route to it. And I think all the candidates to a degree said what they thought people wanted to hear and that you know independence could be just round the corner and so on. Independence is not round the corner. Independence is a long, long way away. And so is it and a misstep? They, is it stupid to say it's my top priority? No, because it's an SNP membership right. election. Yeah. You know, so so I don't think it is all that. I think what I, I think though, after the membership election is finished, I think it would be wise for whoever is First Minister to start to reset expectations a little bit. Because one of the problems that I think has beset the SNP over the last few years is that there has been this permanent expectation that an independence referendum and independence is just around the corner. And it is not. It's around about nine corners. It's really not all that close. And the main reason it isn't all that close is highlighted by that poll that you cited. Mm. There's not a majority in favour of it. And there hasn't really been a sustained majority. I mean, there was about a year where Yes was winning just before COVID. But it, they weren't winning by a long way. And in reality, you want to see a situation where Yes is polling 55, 56, 57% for quite a sustained period of time before you actually think to yourself, well, this is definitely on at this point. So I think it's really difficult for the candidates in an SNP leadership election where you know that the main issue out there amongst the membership and the reason they are members of the SNP is independence, to actually say, do you know what, though? We're going to have to just do this devolution thing a little bit better for the next few years or we're just not going to get there. Yeah, and I, and I think that's it, isn't it? I mean, I, and it'll be very interesting to test the temperature of the, of, of the members here because... We've witnessed a situation where we've had the last six or seven years, uh, Andy, where we've been promised <laughs> another referendum in a year, another year after that, and so on and so forth. And yes, there was mitigating circumstances with COVID and all the rest of it. But you do wonder if the membership have got recognition that this just can't happen overnight. And and listen, I agree with you, you know, and <laughs> of course I do. I do think that the democratic mandate has been ignored mm. by Westminster, but that is where the ball currently lies, uh, whether that's right or wrong, and we can have another debate about all that. Um, the interesting thing is, is the candidate that tries to speak to a plan to build popular opinion in favour of independence, and it is perhaps the one that might come out of this with most credibility. So it's one thing to say it's a priority, and all three of them have said it's a major priority for me. But when we get to the discussion on the plan, it becomes a little bit nebulous and, as we've discussed before, hard to, 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 to kind of ascertain exactly how you would get um, independence. The key thing is here for me 
is you have to build public support for it. And you do that, from my point of view anyway, through competent government first and foremost. Mm. And you use that platform of competent government, uh, government to have a, a credible economic platform, which is where I think the Yes campaign lost it in 2014. Uh, and that will take time, as you rightly say. Do the members recognise that or not? I honestly don't know. But it'll be interesting to see whoever becomes First Minister how they, they, they indicate their plans to try and achieve that referendum, because it is going to take time. That's a tough pill for a lot of members to swallow, but it's true. Yeah. Um, just on competent government, and uh, Andy, just leaning on your expertise from, from previously, uh, this letter from the Scottish Conservative and Unionist Party, um, who have written to the SNP leadership candidate, Kate Forbes, asking for her permission. I thought they'd written to hello at Holyrood Sources. <laughs> <laughs> They're very welcome to. Oh, say, Callum, welcome. You said Andy talking about competent government. I wasn't aware that Andy'd been in a competent <laughs> government, or, or any or government, government for that matter. <laughs> I... I <laughs> Certainly not. I, I, I govern. I govern my household very incompetently. If that's any <laughs> maybe one day, Andy. Maybe one day. In any case, they've written to Kate Forbes. I mean, this is clearly, uh, you know, just to just to prod a little, asking for her permission to use footage of her judgment, or as, as they call it, her scathing judgment on the SNP's record in government from the STV debate. Um, I'm going to read you a bit of this, because it's it's quite funny, credit where it's due. <laughs> dear Kate Forbes... I mean, when was the last time you put somebody's full name in the dear line? I don't know. But anyway, dear Kate Forbes, we thought your honest assessment of the SNP's record in government during the recent leaders' debate on STV was spot on. We applaud your statement on the SNP's watch, quote, the trains never run on time, the police service is stretched to breaking point, and there's record waiting times in the NHS. Such honesty is to be commended. We welcome it wholeheartedly. As Scotland's main opposition party, we've been pointing out the very problems you raised for many years. Unfortunately, until you broke ranks, nobody in your party was willing to accept that the SNP government that you are a part of has been a disaster for, uh, for Scotland's public services. We admire your truthful assessment so much that we would be pleased to feature it in our next party political broadcast on the BBC and STV. We think your scathing judgment deserves to be seen by every voter in Scotland as often as possible. Since your criticism of the SNP's record was delivered with such enthusiasm... We assume that won't be a problem, but we thought it best to give you a heads up anyway. <laughs> is that, I mean, is that comms dynamite? Um, okay, well, it's... <laughs> what you can see is that the Scottish Tory party is loving this. <laughs> yes. And they are definitely having fun um, with the fact that they are not the centre of negative attention. Um <laughs> The reality, I'm afraid to say to my erstwhile colleagues, is that really irrespective of what happened, they are a word that I would not repeat on a family podcast. <laughs> there is not really much future for them the way that things stand. And, and what you have seen, irrespective of the First Minister resigning, what you've seen over the last six months especially, as it has become clear that Keir Starmer is most likely going to be Prime Minister, and as it has therefore become clear that the most, the best bet to protect the union is probably the Labour Party and not the Conservative Party, the 10% or so of unionists, former Labour voters, who have loaned their vote to the Tories 
over the last four or five elections have just gone back to Labour. So the Tory core vote is back to what it really has always been for the last 25 years, which is 16 or 17 percent. So I would sort of humbly say, have fun just now, because 2026 elections not going to be a huge amount of fun for you. Um, I, I think the interesting thing is that I would say that in the last three weeks, Kate Forbes has done more to advance the cause of centrist economics than the Tory party has mm. for really quite a considerable period of time. Now, Kate Forbes will not obviously want that to be the perception. And I think that Douglas Ross last week at First Minister's Questions probably did Kate Forbes no favours actually by sort of going on about that because it gave a lot of people on the other side reason to say, SNP members, you've got to vote for Hamza because if you're voting for Kate, you're actually kind of voting for a Tory and obviously no self-respecting person would ever want to do that. <laughs> so, um, so I don't think it's actually doing her any favours. Mm. But from a kind of, you know, sitting in the Tory press office as I used to do from a sort of tactical fun, get some, he some headlines and uh, upset some people perspective. Yeah, I mean, fill your boots. Yeah. Ah, it, I mean, it was a bit of fun and uh, it, it, it's short lived because, you know, as soon as the contest is over, you know, work begins to address all, all of these issues. But I, I don't knock them for having a bit of fun. I mean, this is a party that's had five prime ministers in six years that's gone through <laughs> Partygate, that's gone through all the shenanigans and the fiascos of recent years within the Tories. Uh, and the SNP have lapped that up. So uh, uh, I think it's um, they're viewing it as their turn. Now, one thing I would take issue with you, Andy, just, just slightly, is um, totally accept polls are, you know, looking very good for Keir Starmer. Um, and uh, it looks like it's a lame duck administration just now. But just one to watch as we go through these uh, podcasts. I sense that there's quite a few people looking at Rishi Sunak overall and going, do you know what, he's cutting a more competent figure. And it was a core vote strategy of economic prudence that served uh, John Major so well in 1992 after 13 years of Tory government. We're now at 13 years of Tory government again. Uh, will there be a, a phoenix on the asses moment? It doesn't look likely, but I don't think it's fair to rule out um, uh, Rishi so, so ahead yeah, of the agree. game. I think that's right. I mean, I think there's always a 20% chance that there's, there's big numbers to overturn in terms of the Tory majority. Uh, and within those seats, there's big majorities to overturn. So I agree. I mean, I don't think for a second it's going to be uh, a sort of Labour landslide situation. Um, but I suppose the point I'm making is that the public think yeah. that Labour is going to win. And that has impacted the Scottish Tory vote quite significantly uh, in the polls here because the public don't think they're going to win anymore and therefore don't think that vote Tory to stop NDRF2 is any longer actually a viable strategy. Mm. Although the Supreme Court has made it an inviable strategy anyway, of course. Yeah, yeah. it is interesting how it frames that, the, the sort of discussion in Scotland though, isn't it? And um, in terms of the timeline, a UK general election um, should come first, unless, unless, of course, the new First Minister pushes the button and goes for a, a snap Holyrood election. Well, there's that's so one thing I was going to say is the most... Um, there's always, I think, a lesson about... Um, you know, be careful what you wish for in politics. And I remember when the Tories were changing Prime Minister every month towards the end of last year, <laughs> that the SNP constantly called for an election. We must have an election, we must have an election, we must have an election. Now that it's happening up here, 
don't think we need an election. <laughs> I always think that about politicians of all parties. You know, whenever it's like when they comment on another party's sleaze issue, when an MSP or an MP becomes embroiled in some sort of uh, sleaze saga, and they get straight out and say something must be done about this. And I sit there and go, guys, everybody's got somebody. Mm-hmm. It's going to come to you soon enough. So you know, just uh, be careful of criticizing something that might happen to you at some point. Yeah, I mean, I, I on that snap election stuff, I think it was, um, I think Hamza intimated it in, a, in, in one of the, a recent interview. Um, it's one of those, I'm just not sure it suits any party at this stage, because I don't think anyone truly knows where it's going to fall. I think, the, you know, Anna Sarver would probably be the, you know, the least concerned about it. I think he'd expect to make gains, but enough to, to defeat uh, the SNP at this stage? Probably not. Even the polls just now that we've been citing show the SNP ahead. Um, I don't, definitely don't think the Tories would potentially want one. And even Hamza himself would feel, I think, that he needs to get establish himself and his cabinet and his team uh, before uh, you know advancing the case for a snap election. So I, I just feel that for none of the candidates, it would make much sense politically at this, and, uh, at this stage. And just to be complete about that as well, to be fair to Hamza Youssef, the reason, because he was asked about this, and he said the reason why it's different is that we elect a first minister, Aye. and Westminster don't elect a first minister, um, which is maybe Callum and an important point for listeners outside Scotland to understand yeah. is that um, you know the leader of the largest party doesn't jump in the armour-plated jag and nip along to see the king and kiss hands and uh, and is then asked to form a government. It's not like that in Scotland. You go to the Scottish Parliament and you must be voted for by MSPs. The first minister has to be elected by MSPs, mm-hmm. um, so it's a little bit different and. You know, there's we're starting to get a little bit more talk about how that might go. I don't think anybody anticipates any problems, of course, if Hamza Youssef wins because he'll be elected by the same 72 uh, MSPs as elected Nicola Sturgeon uh, with the help of the Green Party. Interesting if Kate Forbes wins. Uh, and you can see the kind of political neutrals eyeing this up quite gleefully thinking, what happens if mm. Kate Forbes wins in that first ministerial election because that becomes a much more interesting prospect does everybody in well the green party have almost already said they're not going to vote for her does everybody in the snp vote for her it starts to get quite interesting at that point everybody has started you know flicking through the scotland act to try and work out what happened here <laughs> and do we know is there is there a realistic prospect of that that sort of disruption and chaos jeff is that what we if kate forbes wins is that what we've to expect i think that goes back to the point we're making earlier about the importance of the wise heads and those of uh most stature so your stephen flynn your your john swinney angus robertson you'd be looking at them and say no no no, guys respect the outcome of uh, a democratic vote of our party members and we will uh, back our first ministerial candidate um uh, accordingly very, very risky um, uh, uh, for any MSP to suddenly, particularly with the SNP, to suddenly jump ship. Not unheard of, though. Mm. If you remember in 2012, uh, the NATO debate uh, at the SNP conference, I think it was, correct me, John Finney and Jean Urquhart uh, mm. uh, actually defected from the SNP to the Green Party. But by then, of course, we had the, the 2014 referendum pretty much all set in stone or just about... Uh, confirmed, so it wasn't as impactful there. But nonetheless, um, I think party membership would not 
respond well to, to MSPs not following uh, their democratic verdict. It's a very dangerous territory you get into there. Mm. I do wonder, though, if Hamza might start using it. He did hint in the papers at the weekend that um, he is the one who can be elected first minister. There was a bit of a hint towards that, and I just wonder if he might start using that as a line, as a strategy to say to members, look, guys, mm. you have to vote for me. Because actually, if you don't vote for me, there's a bit of a risk here that we might not have the first, you know. I mean, I, I agree with Jeff. I mean, we, we talked before about the wise old heads and I mentioned John Swinney. And I think that ultimately, the survival instinct, as I've mentioned far too many times now, the survival instinct kicks back in mm. and, it, and it works. And you fix it and it works. Uh, my, but, my problem, with, but moreover, what you say though, Andy, with that, and I'm, I'm not ruling that out, I don't know what's going to be said, but if he did say something like that, I think it would reveal him to be quite rattled. And I think mm. that can backfire in the heat and fire of a contest, a leadership contest, where everyone's um, scrabbling around for news lines. That would certainly be a big <laughs> news line. And I'm just not sure if it wouldn't be counterproductive. Uh, I, I stand to be corrected. Mm. Well, there we are. Uh, that's a really fascinating uh, place in which to leave it for this week. So much going on. Still lots of debates and things to be had. Uh, let me just give you the timelines. The ballot is open. If you're an SNP member, you may have already cast your vote, indeed. Uh, it closes at midday on the 27th of March. Uh, so where are we? Just under a couple of weeks ago, uh, probably, if you're listening to this just as we release it. And then at that point, we'll get an announcement as soon as possible, is what we've been told, as soon as the result can be determined and after candidates have been told. So uh, we've still got just under a couple of weeks of campaigning to go. It feels like it's been going on for six months. I promise you it hasn't. Uh, there's still <laughs> lot, lots more to discuss over the next couple of weeks. Thanks for being with us for this episode. Make sure you follow and subscribe and tell your friends as well. Share this link with somebody. We'd really appreciate that. That'd be brilliant. Brilliant. And we will speak to you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.